Amen. Kids are dismissed, kindergarten through fifth grade, uh, head to their classrooms. The rest of you, please turn me within your Bibles to the book of Daniel, to the book of Daniel. If you're not sure where it is, you can look in the table of contents at the beginning. It's always a helpful uh, resource. Or what you can do if you've been here with us, you've been in our series in the Psalms, you can find the Psalms and uh, then just kind of keep flipping forward past uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Then if you find Ezekiel, you're real close. It's the next book after that. So um, find Ezekiel, then you find Daniel, find Hosea and Joel. You've gone a little too far, uh, but turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. And then before we start, I uh, have to say something. David knows what I'm about to say right now because he withheld some information from you about that new song, which is that he wrote it. So um, uh, pretty special for us to be, yeah. You can tell us when you write a song, David. You don't have to be embarrassed about it. So I love that song. Uh, he brought it to me, uh, I don't know, may, a couple of weeks ago. He always tells me it's just a very rough first draft. But it's not a very rough first draft. It's basically finished by the time I saw it, and it was amazing. And uh, so we're going to sing that again at the end of the service so, uh, um, so that we can get to know it a little bit more. Um, but thank you, David, for serving our church in that way. It's really special and unique to have uh, somebody with those kind of gifts to be able to do that. And so biblical, and, the, and I just resonate so much, obviously, with, with the message of the song. Uh, gee, we have an advocate who's interceding for us as the gospel is amazing. So very, very cool. All right, well, this morning starts the beginning of our 14-ish week series in the book of Daniel. If you know me, you know that this 14-week series in the book of Daniel could turn into a 30-week series in the book of Daniel, but I'm going to really try my best to keep it to the 14 weeks, which is just a little bit, uh, just about a chapter a week, a little bit less than a chapter a week. So uh, that's the plan. And uh, we'll be in chapter one this morning, but we're also just going to spend some time to talk about the book of Daniel as a whole. And so uh, give a preview of some of the things that we're going to see in this uh, fascinating book. So I'm excited. So hopefully you found the book of Daniel by now as I'm turning to it. If so, please bow your heads with me and let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, thank you um, for this day. Thank you for a chance to worship you together as a church body, Lord. I know there's uh, probably uh, many who are w- even watching on the live stream right now with being Labor Day weekend, but for, so for all of us who are gathered here and all of us watching uh, wherever we are, Lord, I uh, just thank you for this chance uh, to go to your word together, to sing together, Lord, uh, to worship you together, to sing new songs, uh, to sing songs that are just saturated in your word and in the gospel, Lord. So we praise you for that. I just pray um, For all of us in this room this morning, God, that we would just have eyes fixed on you, that you would just make the reality of your love for us, your grace for us, um, Lord, um, the fact that you, in your perfect forgiveness, wash our sins away white as snow and you don't remember them anymore, Lord. Just sink that truth, sink that reality deep into our hearts as the enemy wants us to believe anything but that, (laughs) Lord. So protect us from lies of the enemy. May we recognize them and may we know the truth of the gospel. Help us as we look to this book of Daniel, Lord, that you gave us to help us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to equip us, to convict us, to challenge us, to renew us. Lord, help us. Uh, And ultimately, you gave us the book of Daniel to, to show us Jesus. And so help us to see all those things as we spend these next uh, several months in this book. May we be blessed by it. Lord, help me uh, just guard my my tongue and my thoughts and just may uh, 
uh, may this sermon honor you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what do you do when, for your entire life, you've lived in a culture where your faith has been not only accepted by the majority in that culture, but really celebrated, and then suddenly everything changes? What do you do when the morals and values that you and pretty much everyone else you know used to adhere to are suddenly seen by the majority as backwards, offensive, and in some cases, punishable by law? What do you do when you know that God's Word tells you to do something, but there will be very real consequences for your obedience? What do you do when the simple life that you want to lead in following Jesus is interrupted by those in authority telling you that you can't worship in the same way anymore? What do you do when a floating hand appears out of nowhere and writes something on the wall and there's no one to interpret what it says? Well, the answers to all these questions and more are found within the pages of the book of Daniel. Daniel is an incredibly relevant book to us today. The hypothetical questions that I just asked, other than the last hypothetical question I just asked, but the hypothetical questions I just asked in some ways seem to be becoming less and less hypothetical in each passing year. The world kind of seems to be going a little crazy, doesn't it? I don't consider myself an alarmist in any sense of the word when it comes to our culture necessarily. In fact, after all, people have been sinning ever since the Garden of Eden, right? Like the, the uh, culture around the Tower of Babel wasn't necessarily God honoring and glorifying, right? So there have certainly been uh, societies and cultures uh, dishonoring God and worshiping idols uh, ever since uh, mankind was created. So I'm not necessarily an alarmist, but certainly there's no denying the speed in which the principles of Scripture seem to be falling out of favor with our majority culture, and it certainly seems to be getting faster every year. And so as God's people, we need to know how are we called to live, and what are we supposed to do? Well, in God's providence, he has given us the book of Daniel to help us answer that very question question. How are we called to live? Now, there are actually two main themes in the book of Daniel. The first one, which I just said, which is how are we called to live life in Babylon? We're going to talk about Babylon in a little bit. That's the first theme of Daniel. Daniel, how do we live life in Babylon? And then the second theme of Daniel, which we'll talk about, is who is going to lead us out of Babylon? Babylon might be our home right now, but with apologies to the property brothers, we're not in our forever home at the moment. Someone's going to lead us out of this place and bring us to our forever home. So how do we live in Babylon? And who will lead us out of Babylon? Those are the two key themes of the book of Daniel. And these themes, as we study the book of Daniel, we're going to see them flesh out in the two very distinct halves of Daniel. So if you've ever read the book of Daniel from beginning to end, you probably had this uh, moment when you turned from chapter 6 to chapter 7 and thought, what in the world is going on here? 
The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are, are historical narrative. It's, it's events, it's stories telling us about events that take place. And then all of a sudden, you flip from chapter 6 to chapter 7, and everything completely changes. It's like just on a dime. Everything's different. Now, if you're taking the How to Read the Bible Foundations class, and if you haven't signed up for a foundations class, I'd highly recommend that one. If you're taking that one, you are going to learn. If you didn't talk about it this week, I think next week you might talk about it. You're going to start talking about the different genres that make up your Bible. Genres like poetry, which we just studied in the Psalms over the last uh, couple months. Narrative, stories, prophecy, wisdom, epistles, meaning letters, the gospels, story about Jesus, and apocalyptic literature. Now, each genre has a different function. So we read the Psalms differently than we read Revelation, differently than we read Luke, differently than we read uh, Proverbs and Deuteronomy, and on and on it goes. We read the genres differently. And Daniel is really unique because it's made up of two very distinct and different genres of Scripture in its two halves. The first half, Daniel, like I said, chapters 1 to 6, is historical narrative. So stories. tells the story of Daniel and others like uh, Mr. Nezer and Rakshak and Benny and all the other uh, beloved VeggieTale creatures. We're gonna, you're going to read about the stories of their lives as they are working out what it means to follow God in Babylon. And then the second half of Daniel, which is chapters 7 to 12, is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Just that name sounds like, kind of describes what it is. If you don't know what apocalyptic literature is, it's when you're reading your Bible and you're most likely to be like, what in the world did I just read, right? There's certain parts of scripture where we're like, hmm, that's, that's going to take a minute to understand what I'm reading. It can be very difficult to understand. And if you don't believe me, you can ask Daniel himself. I love this. I'd never noticed this before this week. In the last chapter of Daniel... Chapter 12, verse 8, he says something that is extremely relatable to me, and it makes me like Daniel a lot. You can turn there if you want, but this is what he says, talking about the, the visions that he had seen and heard. He says, quote, I heard, but I did not understand. Raise your hand if you've ever left a Sunday service and someone asked what you thought of the sermon, and they, that was your exact words, I heard, but I didn't understand. Oh, nobody raised their hand. How about that? Okay, a couple people. You're not supposed to raise your hand. You're supposed to say, no, I've never thought that. We've always understood every single word that you've ever spoken to us, Pastor Mike. I actually had written in my notes, uh, Butch, put your hand down, but Butch didn't even put his hand up, so how about that? <laughs> All right, so back to Daniel, though. The book of Daniel has some things written in it that can be very different, difficult to understand. They were ex Daniel didn't understand what he was given to him. And there's some things that we will read that we are just going to have to make our best guess at, right? But the, here's the good news. We actually have a better idea of the meaning of what was told to Daniel than Daniel himself did because we are on the other side of the cross. In 1 Peter, uh, it talks about the fact that the prophets were searching and inquiring carefully, wondering these things that had been told to them, what they mean. But he says, now we know what they mean because they're pointing to Jesus. And so we're going to be able to understand these things better than Daniel because 
we know that they're talking about Jesus, many of them. So the second half of Daniel is apocalyptic literature. And it's actually filled with two kinds of prophecies. So there are two different kinds of prophecy that we're going to see in Daniel. So you can see a theme here. We have two themes of Daniel that are split between the two halves. And in the second half, there are two kinds of prophecy. The first kind of prophecy is the prophecy of coming kingdoms, plural. Prophecy of coming kingdoms. Things that would transpire in that region regarding the kings and kingdoms that would come within the next several hundred years after Daniel was written. This is a cool fact about Daniel, which is that most kind of secular biblical scholars uh, argue that there's no way that Daniel was written by Daniel uh, when we believe that Daniel was written because there's no way that anyone could have been that accurate and that specific about the things that were to come. There's just no way. So he must have written, so the book of Daniel, the second half, must have been written after all of these things happened and just pretending like they were being predicted. So, but we would say that um, we do have a pretty good idea of how he could have been so accurate and so specific in the things that were being prophesied because he had a little bit of help, right? The Holy Spirit revealed these things to him. And it's really cool that we're going to see the specificity with which uh, he was able, uh, through the Spirit, to predict some of the kingdoms that would take place through these visions that Daniel had. So we see prophecy of these coming kingdoms that were given to kind of tell the people what the next couple hundred years were going to look like in that region. And then the second type of prophecy we see wasn't about earthly kingdoms, but the heavenly kingdom. So not only is God sovereign over earthly kings and kingdoms, but God is also working to set up his heavenly kingdom through the king who would reign forever. And this king wouldn't just bless one nation, but all, one nation, but all of the nations would be blessed through him and the whole earth. So yes, just like every other book of scripture, like I said, Daniel at its core points us to Jesus points us to Jesus. And we have here now two themes, two halves, two kinds of prophecy, and all these things point us in the book of Daniel, as we will see, to one sovereign God, to one sovereign God. And as we look at the sovereignty of God, the hope is that we will understand in a deeper and greater level his sovereignty over our lives. Because it's easy to read these stories and think that the people are the heroes, Right? Daniel is the one who interprets the dreams. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to the golden image. Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den because he refuses to compromise in his faith and quit praying. So it's easy to think of them as the heroes, right? And yet behind all of these things, we see a sovereign God who is faithful to his people who never once leaves their side. He delivers them. It is God who tells Daniel the dream and what they mean. God is the one who delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. God is the one who shuts the mouth of lions miraculously. And so even though his people are living in Babylon, we're going to see throughout our time in Daniel that God never stops being sovereign and he never, ever stops being faithful. So my hope is that we will be strengthened in our faith in that same God as we study this book together. So that's where we're going in Daniel. The two themes, living life in Babylon and getting out of Babylon, right? 
How do we live while we're here? And what's it going to take to bring us home? We see those in the two halves of the book of Daniel with these two kinds of prophecy that all point us to one good and sovereign God. So let's take a look now, shall we, at Daniel chapter 1 as we start to see these things play out. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to read it and then make some observations about what we see. So look with me starting in verse 1. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, once again, my... uh, my uh, philosophy on reading biblical names is just sound like you know how it's pronounced and people don't question you. So I'm just going to sound confident and we'll, uh, we'll see what comes out. So in the third year of the, king, of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's not good news. Verse 2, God does something kind of unthinkable here. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, lowercase g, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is not good. Israel has been overtaken by Babylon, and we see that God in his sovereignty has allowed it to happen. And now there's this desecration taking place where these holy objects that were in the temple are now being taken into these uh, houses of these other false gods and being worshipped as if they have some sort of power, as if they're going to somehow give these false gods more power. So what's going on is not a good scene. And what's really happening, though, is something that we shouldn't be surprised about if we have an understanding of the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy Moses gives his people the law, and at the end of Deuteronomy, we see two sections. We see blessings, and we see curses. We see blessings. These are the blessings, the things, the good things that would come to Israel if they, in fact, are faithful and obedient to the covenant that they have made with God. They will be abundantly blessed, and they will be a blessing to every nation on earth if they're faithful and obey. But if they're not faithful, and if they disobey, then we see the curses. What's going to happen is that Israel is going to be overthrown. Jerusalem is going to be overthrown. And we see the prophet Jeremiah prophesies that Babylon is going to overthrow Jerusalem. And so when we see here that God, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, even though it looks like things are, are totally out of control for the people of God, who's the one directing this event? God himself. God himself. This tragedy that appeared to befall on the people, it is still somehow within the sovereign plan of God. God has allowed Babylon to defeat and capture Jerusalem. And so think about if you're living there, now everything has changed for you overnight. Like if North Korea took over Indiana and you still lived in Tipton, things might look the same. But everything about your life is about to be different, right? That's exactly what the people of Israel are going through right now. They've been overtaken by this foreign power. Look at verse 3. Then the king commended, here we go, Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, 
youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So Nebuchadnezzar decides that it would be in his best interest to basically look out, look out on uh, Israel and choose the best of the best. Uh, I'm sure if this happened uh, around here, God, uh, the king would have chosen every single member of Rock Prairie, right? Just choose the best looking, the smartest, the brightest, the most intelligent, everything to choose the best of the best. And what he wanted to do was bring them kind of into the king's court and teach them how to become Babylonian. What is it? How do you live life as a Babylonian. He wanted to teach them the language, the literature, the way of life, the culture. He wanted to turn the, the best of Israel into Babylonians so that the rest of the people could see how good it was to live like the people of Babylon do so there would be less likely to be an uprising. So it's very strategic if you see what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar is strategically going to train some of these men so that they can then help kind of ease the fears of Israel, and so he's less likely to have a revolt on his hands. So that's what he's doing. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So like I said, these four Israelites are going to go through this three-year education program that's going to turn them into Babylonians. Well, it's interesting, there's kind of three major things that he's going to change about them, right? First, we've got to go from the backwards to forwards. He's going to change their names, right? This is really interesting because these names are actually named after these Babylonian false gods. So he gives them new names. And he's going to give them a new education as well. And then he's going to give them new food to eat. And then at the end of those three years, they would stand in front of the king with their new names, with their new education, with their new food, and he's going to see how they did. So it's like a three-year training ground. At the end of the three years, they'll come forward, and uh, the insinuation being, if things don't go well, then right, their, their heads are going to roll. It's going to be game over for them. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Isn't that interesting? Daniel says, my conscience, I can learn these things you want me to learn. Doesn't mean I'm going to believe in these gods, but I can learn these things. You can even give me a new name. You can call me whatever you want. That doesn't matter. But I cannot and I will not allow myself and my conscience to be defiled by eating the king's food. Now, we don't know exactly why the food would have been a defilement, whether it was because some of these foods that, that God said were unclean uh, or whether it was just like maybe they had been sacrificed to idols and, and so they weren't comfortable that way. The, that's not necessarily the point. The point is 
Again, Daniel was okay. He, he, fine, get rid of my name. I don't care about that. Fine, you want me to learn these things? I can do that. But my conscience will not allow me to eat this food. I can't do it. I cannot defile myself by eating the food of the king. So what's going to happen? Verse 9. God, we see God's blessing here. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, understandably, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. We're kind of learning a little bit about the king, right? He's got a quick temper. He's not afraid to uh, cut people's heads off, right? So the chief eunuch is working with Daniel. Daniel tells him, I can't eat this food. It goes against everything I believe in. The eunuch's like, well, okay, but you realize if you're not eating this food and, and uh, then all of a sudden you're weak and frail and sick and then uh, the king looks at you guys who I'm in charge of and then he looks at some of these other people and they're not weak and frail and sick, you realize like that's going to be not just the end of your life but the end of my life too. Uh, you're making me a little nervous, Daniel. That's what he says. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief, chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel says, give it ten days. If I'm wrong, okay, we'll, we'll go from there. But just like give us ten days to show you that I will be blessed by obeying my God. That's what he's saying. A ten-day experiment. Verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine and they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God was faithful. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so now it's like the test is official, like the three years is over, and now we're going to see how he did, how they did. Verse 19. And the king spoke with them, and among them, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I can't imagine like, the, how nervous I'd be standing before the king. And he's asking me all these questions like, did you really learn? Did you really get wisdom? He's asking, I don't know. what. If, he probably didn't give him a study guide, right? I don't know if he, they knew what he's going to ask him. But God was faithful, and in every matter, they were ten times more wise and understanding than anyone else. And so while it all worked out in the end, I think one, one thing that can be hard about reading this passage, if you're familiar with it, and other passages you might be familiar with, is when we think about it, we know in the end it all worked out, right? So we don't really think about the real risks that were involved in obedience. The king's food 
was an incredible privilege, right? Like people all over the kingdom would have, would have killed to be able to participate in, in eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine. And so the, certainly like refusing that would have been extremely offensive. Or, so that's one thing, he could have just offended the eunuch who just ran it right up to the king and said, these guys aren't even eating your food. Boom, just done right there. Or that 10-day experiment could have gone the other way, right? They didn't know what was going to happen. Daniel and the others could have been seen as much weaker than the other men. But here's the thing. Even though there are risks, even though we don't always know what's going to happen when we are obedient in a way that is risky, what we do know 100% is this, that when, you're li- when you live in Babylon, your holiness matters. Your holiness matters matters. And this is a first uh, application for us this morning as we find ourselves, again, living more and more in a place that feels like Babylon. Your holiness matters. The way you not only just say you believe something, but you live it out, even when there's real consequences for that. When I was growing up, uh, my dad was the, he was the number two in command at a construction company. And uh, the owner of the company was really not, not a good guy. He was not a believer, and uh, he often tried to cut uh, ethical corners. Maybe some of you can relate to working for someone like that and how difficult that is. There was one time that he was working with, uh, working with this contract on a blood bank that they were building. It was very well-known, uh, kind of a national company. But the, but the owner of the company just started, as soon as like, they started, get, got started on the project, he just started to have some weird feelings about it. And he decided, I'm just going to back out. I'm going to default on my contract, which is not right. And so the client ended up taking him to court because of it. And so the owner of the company... Uh, my dad's company called my dad into his office and said, this is what's going on. We're, we're going to take it to court. And uh, if you get called to testify, you'll probably get called to testify. Uh, here's what you're going to say. You're going to lie for me. And uh, my dad, I look up to my dad so much for these things. My dad, knowing that he could lose his job, looked at him and he said, well, you better hope that I don't get called to testify because uh, I'm, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not going to lie. I love that. My dad's certainly a man of integrity in that way. I don't know if those were the exact words that he said, but he was telling me the story. I told him I'd make him sound really cool by, by the thing that he said to the boss. So. I'm sure almost everyone in here can think of a time when they were pressured to do something unethical in order to either please your peers or someone in authority, maybe even somebody who can make like very real consequences for your lives. The students, you guys feel this more than, more than anyone else, I think, in a lot of ways. Like, you can, like, very easily lose not only friendships, but, like, your entire, like, network of, of, of social network around you. If you stand up for Jesus and do what's right, stand up for the person that you see being made fun of, that everyone else just easily makes fun of them. You know, if I stand up for this person, oh, boy, that, like, they might start to lump me in with them. Or if I don't go to this party that everyone's going to, like, they're going to think I'm weird and backwards and judgy and, and, uh, and I'm going to lose these friends, right? Or maybe you've had a situation similar to my dad's at work where you were asked to do something that you know was wrong and you didn't know if you were going to lose your job because of it. Maybe you're going through that right now. Things in your home. And there's all sorts of situations that we can go through where our holiness is put in this pressure tester where it would be so much easier to just say, well, whatever, or I'll cave this time, but 
but next time I'll do better, right? Like the food thing. I mean, it could have been so easy for them to just be like, okay, we're here, and, you know, God's probably using us because we're in the, he wants us to be in this position of authority, and maybe he wants us to just cave on this one little thing because down the road there's something uh, that he wants us to do. That's not how God works. God calls you to obedience no matter what the consequences are. Your holiness matters in Babylon for three reasons as we close here. Number one, because it protects your witness. Your holiness protects your witness. As a church, we are called to be the light of the world. We're called to be a city on a hill. If you compromise your convictions in order to avoid consequences, that witness goes away. If you compromise your convictions to avoid consequences, you lose that voice of moral authority and you lose that witness. If you're all talk about following Jesus, but then compromise the moment that following him might actually cause you real consequences, that just shows other people around you that this Jesus is he's just somebody you give lip service to. He doesn't actually change your life. But if you do hard things, if you step out in your faith and are obedient in a way where you know it's going to cause real consequences in your life, what kind of message does that show to other people? This Jesus is really worth serving. He's really worth following. He must be great if that person is willing to lose these things for him. Your holiness matters in Babylon because it protects your witness. Number two, your holiness matters because it prepares you for what's to come. It prepares you for what's to come. As we think about the book of Daniel, like this is not the biggest test of faith that Daniel and his friends would face. Right, most of us know the story of the fiery furnace or Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. Both, uh, both stories or because they refused to compromise their beliefs. And at the time of the events here in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends had no idea what was ahead. All that they knew was that they were called to be obedient. Think about it. If they had compromised here, if they had decided it was best to just go along with everything that was asked of them and not make a fuss, there's no way they would have been obedient in the even larger things that were to come in the future. Your holiness matters in the small things because it prepares you for these bigger things that are to come. The church, one of the beautiful things about preaching God's word is that I don't know everything that's going on in your lives. I don't know if there are some in this room who even this week felt pressure to compromise on like something that maybe seemed small. And maybe you didn't compromise, maybe, maybe you did. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your lives. If you felt that pressure to just tell a little white lie, to go along with what your friends are doing even though you know it's wrong, or to like fudge the numbers financially in a way that's just didn't, it's not a huge deal, but it's just going to really make things easier down the road. I don't know, but I do know this. God is using these little tests in your life to prepare you for greater faithfulness in the future. And if you want him to use you for big things... You need to be faithful in the little things. Your holiness matters because it prepares you for what's to come. And then finally, your holiness matters, simply put, because the rewards for following Jesus are 
far greater than any reward the world can possibly offer you. It is so much better to suffer consequences for obedience now for the sake of the reward of the heavenly kingdom. It is so much better to suffer these consequences now than to enjoy the rewards of the earthly kingdom now and suffer consequences in eternity. Amen? It is so much greater. The author of Hebrews tells us about Moses in chapter 11, uh, verse 24 of Hebrews. He says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Meaning that Moses, when he grew up in Pharaoh's house by God's providence, could have just decided, I'm in Pharaoh's family now. My people, whatever, my life's pretty good. (laughs) Moses could easily have hung on to that. And yet, verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Moses decided it was better to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Church, let me just say this. Don't mortgage your relationship with Christ just because of the treasures of Egypt. Daniel knew that he needed to be obedient to God because the future king was more powerful than the present one. And we know that king now. Daniel didn't know his name. We know it's Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, our advocate. And we're just about to sing about again. The one who is interceding for us, the one whose blood satisfied God's wrath for us. And just like Pastor David said, didn't just take away our punishment, but put us, took us from the seat of receiving wrath and put us on the seat of a son. Sons and daughters of the king. He's interceding for us. His perfect love casts out our fear because there's no reason to fear. We don't need to fear what the king of Babylon can do to us. Yeah, we might suffer some consequences. You might need to lose your job. Let me just say that. There might be someone here this morning who like doesn't know what to do. You might need to lose your job or at least risk it. Some of you have made those decisions already in your life. You put it all on the line saying, I, this is it's my conscience and I can't bear to go against what God has called me to do. And if you've done that, I promise you, you've seen God as faithful. It might have been hard. You might have faced some really tough challenges, some really tough consequences, but God was with you that whole time. Don't mortgage your relationship with Christ because of the treasures of Egypt. The reward is so much greater. The reward of Christ is far greater than anything we can experience on earth. So because Christ is holy, your holiness matters. And so as we study the book of Daniel together and try to figure out the difficulty of what it means to live my life in Babylon right now, know this as we start. Following Jesus is always better than anything that the world can promise. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's ask that the Lord would give us grace to be his representatives while we live here in Babylon. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this book. Thank you for the treasures that you have in it, Lord. 
Thank you for the way that you use your people to bless the nations. And God, we pray that as we look to this book, we would see that we are called to do the same. We are called to be a blessing right where we are by following you. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room right now who is like really facing something very real, maybe real consequences of obeying you, God, just give them just such a sense of your peace and such a sense of your strength and knowing that it is so much better to be in your hands than to please the world. God, we can't please the world. We can't do it. May we know that the rewards of Christ is far greater. Even if we never see blessings in this lifetime because of obedience, we know, God, that the reward of following Jesus makes everything else pale in comparison, including all the riches of Egypt, God. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel, Lord. Strengthen us in that. Thank you for our advocate interceding for us who satisfied your wrath and gave us glory because you are glorious, God. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.